Now, we find ourselves in week three of our series, Wait, What?, where we've been reading these strange stories in the Bible that are also true. Not just strange, but they're true. And sometimes those strange stories leave us scratching our head thinking, how in the world does this make any sense? But what we're finding is when you do uh, a deep dive and you do some digging, you can find that God's truth is littered throughout all of it. And so last week we talked about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, we call him the animal king, uh, how he became like a beast of the field for seven years in a major act of humbling uh, done by God because he was getting a bit too prideful. Now this week, our our sermon is called, wait, what? the sneaky southpaw. So we're going to find ourselves in Judges chapter 3. I invite you to turn there if you have your Bible with you. Uh, We're going to start with verse 12, and we're going to go through this story together. So where are we in God's story? Well, the book of Judges, you see, God's people have made it to the promised land. Joshua reminds the people to follow the commands of God, which includes the task of driving out the Canaanites so that they wouldn't, so that God's people wouldn't be corrupted by the Canaanites. You see, they would worship other gods. They even, they did despicable things such as practice child sacrifice. And God did not want his people being influenced and corrupted by the Canaanites. But Joshua dies. God's people ultimately fail to drive out the Canaanites, and so they have to live amongst them in the promised land. And what we see in the book of Judges is they enter into this ongoing cycle where God's people sin, often by worshiping other gods or forgetting God's commands. They experience oppression, and then eventually they remember God and they cry out to him. They repent. And then God rescues his people by sending a judge. Now, before we get into the story, if you're picturing like one of those judges with what are those powdered wigs, you know, and a big robe <laughs> and like these weird stories of someone with like a, a ox goad killing many people, it's not that kind of judge, okay? It's more like a tribal leader type of judge is how we view them. Almost like a warlord if you read these stories. So after God sends a judge to rescue his people, They then experience peace for some time until eventually the cycle starts again. They sin, oppression, repent, cry out to God. God rescues them. There's peace. So Judges 3, verse 12. Let's see what it says in our story today. Starts like this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, Power over Israel. Now, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now, you may remember from our first week in this series, uh, Balak, he was the king of Moab at that time. And do you remember Balak? He was, he was terrified and desperate because he knew him and the Moabites were no match for Israel and Israel's God. But my, how have things changed some years later for the Israelites because they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord? Because now they've been ruled over Eglon for 18 years. But then look at what it says in the next verse, in verse 15. It says, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. 
and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And this is where you can see that pattern. The first, uh, in verse 12, it said, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And here in 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We see that all throughout the book of Judges. And that's the pattern. It took them 18 years to remember God and his ways and to finally call out to him. And as soon as they cry out to him, God sends a rescuer. And the rescuer Israel's second judge, it's a left-handed man named Ehud. So I'd love to see, is anyone here left-handed? Anybody? Just me. I'm left-handed, and I'm very proud of it. I want to know in the comments who out there is a lefty. Southpaws, rise up. This is our day, okay? It's very rare we can preach about the benefits of being left-handed. And I want to share with you some fun facts about us lefties, okay? I have a captive audience. Okay, so we are about 10 to 12% of the population. We know that. There's not a whole lot of us. Get this. Left-handers are more likely to have allergies. Uh, check. We are more prone to migraines. Check. We are better at multitasking. Are any of us really good at that? I don't know, but apparently we're a little bit better, so there we go. Or a little less bad, I guess you could say. Uh, we have an upper hand... Huh? Winky face in sports, okay? And you guys know this, it's always a benefit to be left-handed in sports. You know, if you're a boxer, you got a mean left hook. Uh, baseball, you know, you bring out the, the special pitcher or something. In uh, basketball, if you can go to the left, that's a huge advantage. Oh, I see all my lefties there. There you go. We know that it is a, a benefit in sports to be left-handed. But you also know that society tends to view left as negative and right as positive, right? Right, yeah, all right, yeah, that's right. You're right, right on. Lefties feel left out. We feel left out or that we're always dancing with two left feet. And no one really cares if we're your left-hand man. We only care if you're the right-hand man. Who, who cares about a left-hand man? So now, I know the Bible teaches us all that God loves us all equally, but he does say Jesus is sitting at his right hand, at the right hand of God. The left hand of God is Gabriel, who represents judgment for those that fall out of favor with God that's left. So, so it kind of makes you wonder, like, what did we do, us lefties? Come on, we were created in the image of God, though, so I think he must be ambidextrous. Okay. If this, you only remember one thing from the sermon, don't remember that, because that's not founded in anything. Okay, the last thing for all you righties, having to bear with us annoying left-handers, uh, National Left-Handers Day is coming up. It's August 13th. Be sure to do something nice for the lefties in your life, okay? Because we know this is a right-handers world, and we're just living in it. I mean, all our tools all writing instruments, even kitchen knives are ground a certain way to benefit a right-hander. Almost everything is built for a right-hander. So imagine being a lefty and having to live in this world. Now, Ehud knew the difficulties of being a southpaw. And it's likely that being left-handed then, even though the statistics were probably similar, uh, 
it, it was probably even less likely that people were left-handed because people were often forced to use the right hand. In fact, this carried on for many, many years. Uh, there's stories of just 20, 30, 40 years ago of people being forced to use the right hand to write in school because that's the right way to do things, right? Um, some societies even viewed being left-handed as being bad luck. And many lefties are often forced to use their right hand, which actually show it led to different learning disabilities and things of that nature, too. It's quite fascinating. So Ehud likely uh, may have been forced to use his right hand for some things or just was kind of forgotten about. But the other interesting thing about Ehud is that he was a Benjamite. Now, Benjamites, they're not, at this point in history, they weren't overly well regarded. Uh, the only mention in Judges we have of them is that they failed to drive out the Jebusites. The Benjamin owned that failure in Judges chapter 1. So we have a left-handed Benjamite here that was likely overlooked and disregarded as not having a whole lot to offer. To offer. I wonder how many of us can relate to Ehud. How many times have we felt like we've been overlooked? Maybe it's at your job or at school or with your friends. Or we think that there's no way God can ever use us to do anything of note. Or sometimes it's the other way, when we overlook others because of something about them that makes them different. Or maybe they just don't seem smart enough or good enough or anything. And so we overlook them and their uniqueness. And we see their uniqueness as a hindrance instead of a gift. But what we are constantly reminded of is that God calls and equips all his children for unique and amazing work in his kingdom. And he uses our uniqueness to fulfill our unique calling. He doesn't call us to his team to just have us rot away on the bench, okay? He calls us to play, and he will expertly use each and every one of us to spread his kingdom. So let's see how God uses Ahud. We pick up on our passage today in verse 16. Now, Ahud had made a double-edged sword about a cubic long. That's about 18 inches or so. And he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ahu had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone idols near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Hey, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. So the tribute, uh, that, that's an annual payment that God's people would have to make to Eglon to remain their subjects so that uh, essentially they wouldn't be like slaughtered by the king, okay? And Ahud and his men delivered that tribute and they start to head back. But at the idols, Ahud turns back. And we're not exactly clear why that is. But I wonder if seeing those idols provided Ahud the needed moment of clarity, where, where his resolve became solidified to do what he was called to do, where, where he saw those idols, the very thing that God's people were called to destroy, the very thing that had caused them to enter into this oppression, 
And he knows in that moment, I know what I need to do. These moments happen in our lives too. We have these guideposts. Think back, when in your life was one of those moments when you finally said, you know what? Enough is enough. Might have been some kind of sin within your life and you said, enough. It may have been some kind of injustice in the world and you've been silent and you decided, I need to speak up. Enough is enough. And you say that and a steely resolve comes over you and you charge ahead and nothing can stop you. See, when your passion meets your gifts, and those can be used to meet a need in the world, all of a sudden, the work before you is no longer work. It is your calling. It's that intersection of your passion, your gifts, and a need. And Ahud, he had a passion to restore God's people back to him. He had the gift of being a left-handed warrior and the need to rescue God's people and have them turn away from worshiping the false gods and turn back to the one true God. So with steely resolve, he heads back to King Eglon on his own. And it's interesting, this this detail that he goes back on his own. It's rather strategic because uh, no one would expect a single man to be able to throw an entire host of armies, right? But one man is going up and he tells the king, hey, king, I have a secret. Can anyone here resist a secret? When you hear there's a secret, you're like, I want to know that. I want to know what that secret is. I want to know. It's built within us. We want to know secrets. That's just how we are. And there's no way, this is kind of interesting. The Bible is very descriptive about Ahud being a left-handed man. They make that very clear. And then it's very descriptive about his sword. I borrowed this from Miles. Hi, Miles. He asked me why I never say hi to him on the live stream. So I'm saying hi. Hi, Miles. That's my son, four and a half years old. This is a little short of 18 inches, uh, which is about a cubit. But uh, so he had this sword. He's left-handed, meaning he would keep it on his right hand. You can't keep it on the left. You don't draw your sword like that. It, do- it doesn't work, right? And So he put it under his clothes on his right side along his thigh, he said. Now, 18 inches is a short sword. This is not a typical battle length sword, but it's the right length where if you have it here, your knee can still bend, okay? And you you don't have to like have a stiff leg. You can hide it pretty well like that. So he has it on his right hand with his short sword and he is left handed. There's no way they would have let him talk to the king 100% alone without being searched. But here's the thing. Left-handedness wasn't a big thing. No one thought of it. So it's highly likely they only searched his left side because that's just where you kept your sword. There was no reason to keep it anywhere else. You don't keep it on your right side because you can't draw it. So they probably searched his left side only, but he had his sword hidden on the right side. They felt confident they could leave him alone with the king. So let's read what happens. Picking up in verse 20, it says this, Ahud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace, and he said, remember he already said, I have a secret to tell you, a secret message. Now he says, I have a message from God for you. 
And as the king, he rose from his seat, uh, possibly as a sign of reverence for God, but also possibly in a sign of concern or fear or worry. And he reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly so far that even the handle sank in after the blade. You can read the next little bit on your own. It's a little bit graphic to say on a Sunday morning. Uh, But essentially, the sword stayed within the king. It made mention earlier that that Eglon was a very fat man. They weren't being rude. They were simply giving a detail, the fact that the sword went so far in, the handle even got covered up. Okay. He didn't pull the sword out. He went out to the porch, so he went out a different way than he came, shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And after he went, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. I'm going to pass over this next little detail as well. It's a little bit embarrassing for poor old Eglon, um, but essentially they were waiting for a long time. You're going to want to read that on your own because it's probably the biggest wait what moment of the story and you can piece together what they are getting at. But essentially they were waiting a long time and during that long time they were waiting, it allowed Ahu to get away. He gets back to the Israelites and he immediately leads his people in battle, claiming to them that the Lord has given our enemies into our hands. Now imagine they are marching up The Moabites just found out that their king is dead, so there's no leadership. There's mass confusion. And what do we read? In Judges uh, chapter 3, verse 29, it says, At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all, every one of them vigorous and strong, and not a single one escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace, not 18 years, but for 80 years. What can we learn from this gruesome, graphic, almost James Bond-esque story that really happened in the Bible? Well, I think it means just don't mess with us lefties. Don't mess with us, okay? In fact, I think that's all we can gather. I think we can just pack it up, go home. Don't mess with us lefties. Have a great day. Kidding. How irresponsible of me would that be? No, this is what we learn. When you earnestly cry out to God in repentance, with a repentant heart, he will rescue you. He will, every time. We also see that the means by which God works are often incredibly surprising and different than we imagine, and not at all what we expect. Ehud, he took immediate and decisive action in the face of something he knew was wrong. So that leads us to question, for us to consider, when was the last time God showed you something wrong in your life? And you took immediate and radical action to make it right. I think these moments come up to us in our lives. And if you're anything like me, you might have to think about it for a while or or make a pros and cons list or talk to all your friends or uh, uh, you contemplate, you journal and you keep putting it off. And then eventually you kind of just don't act. But 
but what does a life of faith require to fully trust the Spirit's leading when we see something wrong, then sometimes it means to immediately take radical action to make it right. What else can we learn? Well, when was the last time you asked God to show you how he could use something unique about you just as he used Ahud's left-handedness? You are more unique and more gifted than you know. How might God want to leverage your unique giftedness to bless this world? And finally, the enemies we face today, they are as real as Ahudes, but they are usually not oversized and overstuffed kings. They're usually found within ourselves. The battle we fight It's not against this world, flesh and blood, but against the powers of sin, the powers of Satan. And we need God's help to battle against it. He gives us our resources that are unique to help us in the fight. But this is the good news. The war is already won in Jesus Christ. He overcame and he made the way for us. You see, he is our ultimate rescuer. So we need not fear. And he helps us in our success. And his forgiveness is sufficient for each and every failure. So the question I leave you with is this. Today, what battles are you fighting? Have you invited God into that battle? Or are you trying to go it alone? What battles are before you that you maybe have been putting off? But now it's time. It is time to take that swift and decisive action to put on the full armor of God and go to battle. If you're unfamiliar with the armor of God, I invite you to ask someone who is in Hope Kids. They have been learning deeply the full armor of God, even making representations of it. Ask a Hope Kid and they will tell you what that armor of God is. We can overcome anything that is thrown at us, no matter how frightening or scary, for we do not fight alone. God is with us. He goes before us. He has equipped us. And in his infinite creativity, he created you to be uniquely you. And he calls you to use your gifts to love, live, and lead like him in your very own unique way. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read this story and there's plenty of points of it to scratch our head and to laugh and to wonder what's going on here. And we have questions about the violence and the difficult nature of certain things to wrestle with, Lord. But at the heart of it, we see a good God rescuing his people when they cry out. And Lord, we give you so much thanks that when we cry out, when our hearts are sincere, when we come to you in repentance, 
every single time you rescue us. Your forgiveness is without end. Your love never fades. Your mercies are new each and every morning. Lord, we pray that today you reveal in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit those battles that we need to fight, those areas of sin in our lives that it is time to tackle. And God, those very battles we are fighting even now, we pray that we lean not on our own strength, but on yours. We pray that in your creativity, we find ways to get through. And Lord, we know ultimately we can't do it on our own. So we pray that we will rely on your spirit and your guidance through it all. We thank you that you have created us as your masterpiece, that you have created us each uniquely with gifts to further your kingdom in our own unique way. We pray for a passion, God, to be about the things that you care about. We pray that we have eyes to see the needs around us, that we will step forward in faith into our calling today. Give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this day. And we love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.